Welcome to the Magnificat Podcast. We are an international ministry to Catholic women. Throughout this series, we will pray together, share insights, and hear amazing testimonies, typically from women of faith who have been touched by the power of the Lord in their lives. This is a decidedly Catholic podcast, and in this series, you will hopefully learn more about the Catholic faith, God, the Blessed Mother, and much more. Thanks so much for joining us. Now let's listen to a great program. Welcome to Magnificat Proclaims, presented to you by Magnificat, a ministry to Catholic women. I'm Donna Ross, your host for today's program. We pray that today may be a special day in your life as you experience through the personal testimony of our featured guest, the presence of Jesus Christ among us. It is my privilege to introduce our speaker, Johnette Benkovic. What does it mean to be a Catholic woman in today's world? Well, to Johnette, the answer is clear. When we look to the mission of the Catholic woman, we are called to emulate the spiritual motherhood of Mary. After years of being a non-practicing Catholic, Johnette experienced a deep conversion back to her Catholic faith in 1981 and discerned a call to share the gospel message through the media. Founder and president of Living His Life Abundantly International and executive producer of Women of Grace Live, Johnette has been a consistent presence in Catholic radio since 1987, and in Catholic television since 1988. Let us listen intently to this woman of grace, Johnette Benkovic. Well, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I had the great privilege and honor of being born into a Catholic home. And I spent the first 12 years of my education in parochial schools. In my elementary school years, I was taught by the Vincentian Sisters of Charity. And in my high school years, I was taught by the Dominican Sisters. I remember with such great fondness the way in which the Sisters of St. Vincent de Paul worked into the very interior being of our heart that beautiful, beautiful gift of faith. And I can remember the sisters, they, they just were wonderful in giving us illustrations, you know, of how much God loved us and what a soul that was filled with grace would look like. 
I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we had some pretty serious winters there. And I can remember our, our windows along the side you know, of, of our classroom looked out onto this great lawn that was in front of our school. And it was just covered with snow. And the sun was shining so brilliantly, and the sun was gleaming off of that snow. And it was so white, you could hardly look at the snow, you know, because it hurt your eyes. It was that brilliant. And Sister Mary Theophane said, that is what your soul looks like when you make a good confession. And, you know, that stuck in my mind. So, well, obviously so, right? All of these years, I still remember that. And it gave me such a desire for a deep union with our Lord Jesus Christ. I loved the saints tremendously. My very favorite saint was St. Therese of Lisieux. I called her uh, St. Teresa the Little Flower. That was the way that she was presented to us. And I remember one day at the age of eight, my mother was baking a French coffee cake and she sat me up on the counter. Now, the truth of the matter is I don't like to cook. And I didn't like to cook then either. <laughs> so my mom was trying to teach me about all of this business about measuring, you know, and putting it into the bowl, and here's the mixer. I could care less about that. So there I was, I was sitting on that countertop, and my mom was doing her French coffee cake, and I took her recipe, and on the back of it, I wrote a prayer to St. Uh, Teresa, the little flower. And it, it was like, St. Teresa, shower me with roses, shower me with roses of grace, so that my soul might shine like white lace. St. Teresa, shower me with roses, shower me with roses as I play so that my, my soul to God might give praise. And it just went on like that with these little uh, verses. Uh, not too long ago, maybe 15 years ago now, so maybe it is a while back, I was down looking through my mom's cookbooks for a recipe, and there was this French coffee cake recipe and this great big, you know, print that was two lines for the capital letter and one line for the little letter uh, in, in my backhand, left-handed way of print, there was that uh, poem. So I asked my mother if I could take it home with me, and she said yes. I remember that I would uh, crawl into the forsythia bushes along the side of our house, and I would sing love songs to our Lord. But when I went into high school, which was in the early 60s, already at that point in time, there was a cultural revolution that was underway. And, you know, the Vatican Council closed in 1965, and, you know, we went away on summer break, and, and the sisters all had long habits on, and we came back, and suddenly the habits were shorter, and their hair was showing. And it was, like, very confusing. I graduated from school, high school, in 1968, and I headed off to the Pennsylvania State University. I went off looking like your typical college co-ed. But I wasn't at university very long when I discovered, oh, you know, there is something happening up here, and I think I want to be a part of all of that. And so I traded in those little plaid skirts for bell-bottom jeans and those little fuzzy sweaters for an army fatigue shirt. And I wore contact lenses as I do now, but I popped those out of my eyes and I went and got granny glasses and I had the lenses tinted pink so that I could see the world through rose-colored glasses. And indeed, I did that for about three and a half years of my college experience. And a funny thing, of course, began to happen. The more I began to be consumed by what was taking place on college campuses, the less I could reconcile living my faith within my own heart. It was clear to me at that point that something had to go. And unfortunately, the something to go was my faith. You know, I don't think that anyone wakes up one morning and says, oh, good, today I'm going to become a great sinner. You know, that's my goal today. Today I'm just going to go right out there and I'm going to sin big. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. It's a funny thing about sin. It leads us away from God 
one small decision at a time. You know, the great saints talk about the reality that not only do we want to rid ourselves of mortal sin, but we want to rid ourselves of venial sin to the extent that we can cooperate with grace and do so. Because you see, even venial sin begins to chip away at the edifice of grace that is in our heart. And so it was with me at the Pennsylvania State University. I didn't wake up one morning and say, today I'm really going to become a big sinner. But I did it gradually and slowly by making one poor decision after the other. A little sin here, a little sin there. And one day I woke up and realized, now I can take a giant step, a big sin here, a big sin there. On my 21st birthday, I woke up and looked in the mirror. I didn't even recognize the woman who was looking back at me. I didn't know how I had ended up where I was. I simply knew that everything that I had fashioned for myself was falling to pieces around me. Life no longer has any engagement for you. To have a sense of fatalism so deeply rooted within you, you don't know if you're going to make it through the day because the depression is so deep. And to come to the reality that you created your own hell. And isn't that what we do? We create our own hell by the choices that we make. One poor choice after the other. On that particular day, I remember I, I wanted to get out of this apartment that I was in. I had to get outside. I, I had to get away from me. And I wasn't quite certain how to do that. Did you ever have an experience that you just wanted to get out of your body for a few minutes? If you could get out of your body for a few minutes, then maybe you could sort this out, and then you could come back, and things would be okay. I left the apartment. It was a beautiful, absolutely glorious day in State College that day. And the brilliance of that day stood in such sharp contrast to my own interior being that I couldn't stand it. I had to get out of the light. And so that particular day, as I walked through State College, I went to a college hangout. And metaphorically, in order to get into this college hangout, you had to walk down steps from the street level into the basement. And in many ways, that journey, walking down those steps, was symbolic of the movement my life had taken. It was a bar. Now, I have to tell you, I didn't go in there to drink. I went in there to get out of the light. And so I sat down at a table, and the waitress came over, and I ordered a glass of water. She didn't seem to be happy about that order, figuring she wasn't going to get a tip. But what college student has money to tip anyway? We didn't have that kind of money in that time. The glass of water came, and perhaps Perhaps it was the darkness in the room. Perhaps that darkness not only was symbolic of my own interior depression, my own spiritual state, which I doubt very much that I had the capacity to evaluate clearly at that time, given the life that I was leading. But there was also something else familiar about that darkness. It reminded me of the confessional. I like confessional boxes. There is something about the darkness of the confessional box 
that aids us in getting in touch with ourselves. And I sat in the bar that day, and I began to get in touch with myself. And I started to cry. And as I began to cry, I began to do something that I hadn't done in a very long time. I began to pray. And I remember saying to the Lord that day, you know, I used to be so sure of you. The misery in my heart is so great within me, I'm not even sure of you. But you know what? If you do exist, if you do exist, and if you love me, show me. Because if you do not show me, Lord, I am likely to do something very serious. I got up from that table, and tears were streaming down my cheeks from my eyes. And I walked back up those steps and out into the sunlight. And I, I remember I threw my head back, and I let the sun begin to, to dry up the tears on my face. And when I opened my eyes, there in that azure sky, where nary a cloud was floating by, was a rainbow. A rainbow. And I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew that indeed God loved me and that he was showing me that love and he was proving to me that he existed. A big change happened in my life after that. I'd like to be able to tell you that that, that sent me running right back into the arms of Holy Mother Church, but that's not true. And, but the reality is simply this. It was a moment of God's mercy which led me to change my lifestyle and to change my clothing, for which my parents were abundantly grateful. It would take me another, I would say, oh, 10 years to come back to the faith. And that happened through the testimony of a woman who was going through a very difficult divorce. And in the midst of that very difficult divorce, she would share with me that she knew that her Jesus had a plan in this mess for her. And I was so touched by the depth of her faith that God could work this horrible mess of her life to some good for her and her sons, that I believe it acted as a stir would act in the depths of my soul, stirring up those baptismal graces that I received. And I asked her one day, I said, you know, it sounds to me like you have this personal relationship with the Lord. And she says, oh, I do. And I said, well, it sounds to me like <laughs> you talk to him. And she says, yeah, I do. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. And I said, and you hear him? And she said, yeah, I do. And I said, do you think I could have a relationship with him like that? And she said, oh, Johnette, I'm quite certain. I'm quite certain that you could. And she says, I'm going to tell you exactly how. We're going to a prayer meeting. OK, sure, we'll go. That sounds great to me. So she looked in the yellow pages of the book for the various Catholic churches in our area's numbers, and she called them up to find out if they had a, a prayer community that was going on. And indeed, our own parish, Espiritu Santo, Holy Spirit, had a prayer meeting every Tuesday night. And I'll never forget that prayer meeting. It was in August of 1981. And we approached the church there, and we stood outside of those doors. We were late. I was late. I made us late. She said, let's go inside. I said, Okay, let's go. So we walked into the church, and there were all of these people, and they were standing up, and they were singing. And there was this poor little 
group of people up there singing. I'll never forget it. Jim Mooney was up there, a great man who, who had Lou Gehrig's disease, and he was part of this part of this uh, uh, a group of people that were singing. And they weren't all that good, I have to admit. They were kind of off-key, but nobody seemed to care, you know? Nobody cared one hoot about it. And I looked at these people, and these words were coming out of their mouths, and everything was going on there. And I looked at my friend Anne, and I said, Anne, do you think that Father knows about this? And she said, oh, I'm very sure. And I said, do you think this is really Catholic? She says, oh, I'm quite sure it is. Let's go. She said, we're going to go right up front to that first pew. I said, the first pew? The first pew? She says, let's go, John. And I said, okay. And something happened between the back of that church and that first pew. I'm walking up that side aisle. I got zapped in the Holy Spirit. This is so great. I could not wait to get home and tell my husband, Anthony. I ran into the door and I said, Anthony, I went to this prayer meeting. Catholics, do you believe this? They were singing out loud in church, having a really good time. Did you know you can have fun in church, Anthony? Can you get over that? He was surprised, to say the least, about the change that happened in his wife, but that's another part of the conversion story that we'll have to wait. When I came back to the church, our Father God was so merciful and gracious to me. He lavished his love upon me, and I lapped it up like a kitty laps milk up from a saucer. I was so hungry for him, I couldn't get enough of him. I couldn't get enough of prayer. I couldn't get enough of sacred scripture. I couldn't get enough of prayer meetings. I couldn't get enough of anything. And God in his mercy gave me a scripture passage. And it's a scripture passage that I typically begin every talk with, and I'm going to begin the majority of this talk now with that scripture passage, because it is the spiritual rudder of my life. And I mean that absolutely. It is the spiritual rudder of my life. Now, how many of you here have ever asked those great big existential questions that lots of kids ask at certain times in their lives? You know, who am I? You know, like, what am I really all about? Why did God create me? What, you know, why? And what is my purpose and mission in life? I was asking those three questions at the Pennsylvania State University, but every answer for those three questions is contained in the scripture passage that I am going to share with you now. And I want for us to unpack this scripture passage because whenever life doesn't make sense, whenever you think that you cannot take your next breath, this scripture passage will tell you who you are, why you are, and what your mission and purpose in life is all about. And it will explain for you, in many cases, precisely why God is entrusting you with whatever circumstance, trial, suffering, misery, contradiction, or struggle is for, and what his purpose is in all of it. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. And it begins like this. Praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has bestowed on us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavens. I get giddy about that passage. Praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has bestowed on us in Christ every spiritual 
blessing in the heavens. God chose us in him before the world began to be holy and blameless in his sight, to be full of love. Praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has bestowed on us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavens. God chose us in him before the world began to be holy and blameless in his sight, to be full of of love. Let's take a look at each of these verses. Let's take a look at Ephesians 1.3. Let's start there because that's where the verses start. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has bestowed on us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Now, I was an English teacher for seven years. How many of you liked grammar? Raise those hands. Hi. <laughs> now, how many of you liked diagramming sentences? Woo! Didn't you love that? I mean, I love that. Now, how many of you used to quake in fear interiorly when your teacher would say, it's time to go to the board and diagram that sentence? Some did. Well, let's take a look at the construction of that sentence. I have found in my experience that some of the greatest treasures of sacred scripture are bound up in the smallest of words. And I believe that that's the case with this passage. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has bestowed on us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Now, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is telling us to do that? Ephesians. Who wrote the book of Ephesians? St. Paul is telling us to do that. Is he asking us to do that? No. What is he doing? He's commanding us to praise God, right? Right Now, what is the subject of that little beginning, that first clause of that sentence? Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's to do the praising? You are. So he's saying, he's not saying, we'd like you to praise. It'd be great to praise. It'd be really fun if you praise God. You know, I've got a great suggestion for you today. What about praising God? No, St. Paul is not doing that. He is commanding us to praise God. Now, don't you wonder why? I mean, like, what is it about praise that is such a big deal? Why do we praise God? We praise God not because God needs it. You see, when, when I first began to think about this praise thing, I, I used to think to myself, well, you know, like, is God like some big egomaniac, you know, sitting on a throne up there saying, hey, praise me. You know, <laughs> praise me, people. How about praising me? You know, sometimes we get that idea. You know, praise God, praise God, praise God. Why? God does not need our praises. There's a newsflash for you. He is a trinity of persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, complete and entire in himself. The ultimate of happiness is God. He doesn't need us. He chose us out of love to experience the depth of that Trinitarian life. God gives us every circumstance and situation in life, he permits it to happen for our ultimate good. All of that from praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why St. Paul doesn't say, you know, here's a good idea. Why don't you praise God? He's telling us, do it. And so I say to you today, do it, do it, do it. You know what you're facing right now. I don't, but God does. And when you praise him, not just in the midst of it, through some kind of stoicism. Okay, Lord, here I am. I am tough. Yeah, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to praise you through it all. Boom, boom, boom. Here, look at me. I'm praising you. When we go to God and we don't praise him in the midst of it, when we actually praise him for it, you hear the difference there? When we praise him for it, we now 
are in an attitude of receptivity. We have a disposition of heart that is ready to embrace. And in that receptivity and disposition of heart, we can now begin to receive the blessings that God has in mind for us in that situation. God has bestowed on us in Christ. Spell that with me. H-A-S. Has. Has bestowed on us in Christ. Now, why is that little wee word so very important? If, if that passage says, God bestowed on us in Christ, what would that tell us? It's in the past. It happened and it's done with, right? But when we add that little wee helping verb, has, what does that tell us? Has bestowed. It's ongoing. It happened in the past, and it keeps on going. Now, when were these blessings bestowed on us? At baptism. At baptism, we received what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavens. So God is bestowing on us every blessing in the heavens. And when is he doing this? 24-7. There's no time in eternity, right? So God is always about the business of giving us every single spiritual blessing in the heavens. Isn't that exciting? I mean, I am so excited. They are there for us in every circumstance, in every situation, in every trial, in every misgiving, in every doubt, in every state of confusion, in every struggle, in everything, all of our life. If we are attentive to the way in which God is working within us and through us, we are receiving every spiritual blessing in the heavens. No time in my life, I tell you no time in my life did that passage serve me better than on that morning of March 20th, 2004, when there was a knock at our garage side door at quarter to five in the morning. And I went to that side door with fear and trepidation, telling myself it cannot be the police. They would never use the side door by the garage. They would come to the front door. Don't worry, Johnette, everything is fine. It cannot be the police. It cannot, it cannot, it cannot, it cannot, it cannot. But who else comes to your door at quarter to five in the morning? I went to that door and I answered that door and there were two Florida State Highway patrolmen standing there. A quick look out the door and I noticed that the Lights on their cruiser were not on, and I noticed that my son's truck wasn't there. I opened the door, and the officers asked me to identify who I was, and I gave them my name, and they said, may we come in, ma'am? I said, yes, you may. They said, are you alone, ma'am? I knew. I knew right then and there. I said, no, officers. I said, my husband is, is with me. He said, go get him. So I went and I got Anthony and we came back down into the family room and they asked me to turn the lights on. I left them in the dark. And we stood there and those two highway patrolmen snapped to attention. And they said, Mr. and Mrs. Benkovic, on behalf of the Florida State Highway Patrol and the state of Florida, we regret to inform you that at 1.01 a.m. this morning, your son Simon lost his life in a vehicular accident. You know, it's hard to talk about what wells up inside of you when you hear something like that. 
I remember that I doubled over in pain. All of the pain was localized in my womb. Later, a friend shared with me, a friend who had also lost her son. You see, that's why I knew. I knew perfectly what they were, what they were saying to me in those questions and all of that at the door because she had lost her son and she had shared with me and they must take a course in this and they all say the same thing. That friend shared with me later that researchers say that when a woman is pregnant with a child, the DNA of that child is imprinted on her womb. And so, you know, teasingly, I often say that umbilical cord really does extend, you know, all through life in the maternal way. It's also interesting to think about that in reference to the women who have aborted children uh, and, and why it's so difficult for healing to come. Women who have had miscarriages, you know, we often look at that grief and it's a grief that we quickly put to the side. We cannot put that grief to the side. That woman carried that child and that's a very real loss. I asked those officers only two questions, only two. Was there anyone in the truck with my son? No, ma'am, came the response. And I said, praise be to God. Yes, ma'am, said the officer. Officer, was there any other vehicle involved? No, ma'am, came the response. Praise be to God, I said. And he said, yes, ma'am. I didn't want anyone else to be going through what my husband and I were going through in that moment. I didn't want any other parents to be hearing these tragic words as we were hearing them. I wanted no other young life to be taken through that kind of an accident. And once I had that assurance, that pain almost consumed me, and I ran into our bedroom, and I flung myself on the floor, and I cried out to God, and I screamed, and I yelled, and I cried, and, and I wailed, and these sounds were coming out of me. They were almost animal sounds, and I didn't even recognize them. I thought, what are those sounds? Where are those sounds coming from? All those sounds are coming from me. They're coming from me. That's me. And I couldn't control them. I mean, I could think, but I, I had no control. And I said, oh, I know. This is exactly what it means in Scripture where it says that Rachel wails for her children. I'm wailing. I'm wailing for my son. I'm wailing. I'm wailing. I am in such pain, Lord. I am in such pain. I am in such pain. I am in such pain. I hurt. I hurt. I hurt. I hurt. I hurt. And I said to the Lord, I just want you to know something, Lord. I'm never getting up off of this carpet. I'm here, this green rug. I can touch it. I can feel it. It makes sense. I'm here. I'm never, ever getting up again. I'm not, I'm not doing it. And scene after scene from Mel Gibson's film, Passion of the Christ, which I had just seen twice, began to play in my head. And the scenes that were playing in my head were the scenes of our Blessed Mother. One scene after the other of Our Lady. Our Lady, Our Lady, Our Lady. And I love Our Lady. And somewhere in that, I sensed that the Lord was, was entrusting to me some kind of grief that was in association with Our Lady, but that he was also saying that Our Lady was there, that she was there for me. I didn't feel her. I didn't see her. But she was there in some way. And I said to the Lord, you know what? I have proclaimed Ephesians 1-3 from one end of this country to the other, from north to south, east to west. I've proclaimed it on television. I've proclaimed it on radio for 20 years. And I believe it. Do you hear me, Lord? I believe it. And you tell us in Ephesians 1.3 that you give us every spiritual blessing in the heavens. And I am holding you to that. And I'm going to tell you right now which blessing I want, just like a woman. <laughs> I want that very blessing 
that Our Lady received from you to hold her firm underneath that cross while her son was being tortured to death. That's the blessing I want, and I'm not settling for anything else. Do you hear me? Now, I am screaming this in the bedroom. I don't know what those officers thought was going on in there. And I said, Lord, that's the one I want, and I, I'm not getting up. If you don't give it to me, I'm done. I am here on this floor. I'm never moving. And again, there was no perceivable consolation. You see, and this is what we have got to understand. And when I was laying there on that floor, crying out, asking God to give me that very grace that held Our Lady underneath that cross, I had a decision to make. Am I going to trust in the Word of God and the teachings of the Church, or am I not? Now, faith is a theological virtue, and when do we receive that theological virtue? Baptism. Faith resides in the intellect. And we give an intellectual ascent, A-S-S-E-N-T, not A-S-C-E-N-T. We're not going to rise off the ground. A-S-S-E-N-T, which means yes. We give a yes to that which we know to be true. Well, I knew that the word of God is true. I knew that Ephesians 1.3 is true. I knew that no matter that I felt such annihilation, it wasn't even grief yet. It was annihilation. I felt like somebody went into my body and pulled out every organ that I had. If I relied on my feelings, I would be devastated. But I knew that I knew that God was giving me, even in that moment, every spiritual blessing in the heavens. And I made a decision to believe it, to give my intellectual assent to that which I knew to be true. But that wasn't enough. It was okay to say, well, yeah, I, I, I know he's giving me every spiritual blessing in the heavens. That wasn't going to get me off the floor. That was good. That was a good, healthy first step. But it wasn't going to get me off the floor. Faith resides in the intellect, but it's exercised in the will. It's exercised in the will. God gave us free will. Now that I know that this is true, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to lay on the floor? Or am I going to say, okay, Lord, even though I don't feel anything except total annihilation, I'm going to get up off of this floor and move in faith. I'm going to allow that faith to move me through this crisis, knowing that your blessings are not nullified by my lack of emotion. And so I pulled myself up off of the floor, believing that that very blessing that was available to Our Lady that held her under the tree was available to me as well. And I went back out into the family room and thanked the officers for being there, told them that I would pray for them, that I knew that this had to be the most difficult part of their job thanking them for their service to our state. And my husband and I went about the business of laying our son to rest. It is critical for us to understand this. It is critical for us to know that very often, what we consider to be our biggest tragedy is all about the mercy of God. I remembered that a priest a friend of mine, years and years prior to this, probably 15 years prior to this, said to me, Johnette, you know, when somebody dies tragically, it's an act of God's mercy. And I remembered saying to him, Father, what do you mean by that? He says, do you know that God loves us so much? He created us to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this life, and to be happy with him forever in heaven. Why did God create us? For eternal destiny. 
and it is the job of every parent to work for the eternal destiny of his or her children. He said, God knows that precise moment when we are the closest to him that we will ever be in our lives. And he said, I have come to believe that tragic deaths are all about God's mercy. Plucking that person from this life at the moment that is ripest for their eternal salvation. I held to that. I believed that was a blessing, an insight that God was giving to me. Simon was our child who always struggled. He was an ADD kid when ADD was just being diagnosed. He had a tough time. He went to Iraq and came home, and I am certain he had post-traumatic stress disorder. I know he did. He was coping in unhealthy ways. And yet I know that God was all about the mercy of Simon. I remember one day I went out to pray the rosary, the only prayer that I could pray, and I couldn't meditate. All I could do was add my tears and my suffering to every bead. Oh, Lord, I'm shedding a tear. I, I add that to this bead. And I would just pray those Hail Marys. I couldn't get into meditation. And I said to the Lord, all I wanted was one last hug, Lord, just one last hug. And the Lord said to me, Johnette, would one more hug have been enough? And I said, no, Lord. And he said, you see? And I said to him, Lord, all I ever wanted was for Simon to be healed. And he said to me, you know, my child, he is more healed with me in this moment than he ever could have been with you. And I rejoiced. I rejoiced at the mercy of God. I rejoiced at the mercy of God. Because what if Simon hadn't died but lost his soul? Would I have been happy for those maybe 20 or 25 or 30 years left of this life that I have? That I could have had him with me in some state of who knows? No. I would rather give up these 20, 25, or 30 years and have eternity with him than settle for something less than that for all eternity. I remember one day going out to pray the rosary, and the thought occurred to me, I am suffering so deeply. I mean, I was, I can't even tell you. And I thought, you know, if this pain is so difficult for me, a woman who is sinful, selfish, only concerned about her own motivations, her own desires, I lost my son at 25, I'll never have the experience of the children that he may have had, I'll never see him married, I'll never feel that arm around me again, or hear him say, hey, Ma, I love you. Or, hey, little lady, how are you doing today? If it hurts me this much, how much more must it have hurt our blessed mother? She, who was without sin, who had no selfish motivations, no desires, she felt that pain perfectly, perfectly. And I sensed the Holy Spirit say, not only did she experience her maternal pain perfectly, but she was so conformed to the will of the Father, he, being spirit, mourned his son in her heart. She suffered maternally and paternally for our Lord's death. I learned in that time that there is immeasurable grace, immeasurable grace, in attaching to the cross Every suffering we have, whether it be big or small, every contradiction, every betrayal, every reversal, 
I remember people saying to me, you know, John, you, you, you should really take some antidepressants. I said, I'm not depressed, I'm grieving. And I said, do you, do you understand? I said, do you know what God has entrusted to me? Do you know, do you know what he's given me? He has given me a share in his own passion. I don't want to miss one blessing, one grace, or one lesson in this. I want to remain fully in tune to this mystery that's being worked out in me. We had a large cross, still have it, it's in the bedroom, it's about this big, leaning against the dresser. I remember one day I took that cross and I prostrated myself on it. I said, Lord, burn this cross into my being. Burn it into my being. Let me embrace this fully, fully, fully. Because I trust in him absolutely. I trust in him. The power that is available to us in the midst of our suffering is incomprehensible. Think of it this way. It was in the suffering. It was in the redemption. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, any other oblation, it was the crucifixion, the greatest pain ever, that brought the greatest grace that continues to roll down Calvary's hill into every day and every age, into the life of every person who is willing to receive it. Our suffering, our torment, our travail, our psychological disorder, our depression, you know, our cancer, our, 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 our loss, our tragedies, you know, losing your financial security. I don't care what it is. Do you understand that this is an entry into the passion of Christ? He's chosen you to enter into that passion, that you might be a conduit of his redemptive grace in the world today. That is who you are. And I see it so clearly. 51 weeks to the day later, my husband on the baptismal day of our first grandchild, the cancer robbed us of, we have two grandchildren robbed us of both baptismal days. On the baptismal day of our first grandchild, my husband had a grand mal seizure in our kitchen, March 13th, 2005. Remember, Simon died March 20th, 2004. And that seizure led to a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. And there we were. We were still shallow breathing from Simon's death. And now we are faced with this major crisis. My husband looked at me and he said, you know, he said, John, he called me John, you know, John, we can do this. We can do this. We know about God's sufficiency. We can get through this. And we did. He offered every bit of his suffering for the sake of the apostolate for living his life abundantly and women of grace. Sister Breege McKenna came to our home with a relic of John Paul II and prayed over Anthony. And she said in her cute little Irish accent, oh, I see a beautiful road, beautiful road. Jesus is on this road. You're on this road. Tony, you're on this road. You're walking down this road. Jesus is with you on this road. I said, we're not getting a healing. That's what she's telling us, you know? We're not getting a healing. This beautiful road. And Anthony said in that moment, he said, and we knew, we knew, we knew what she was saying. She was just so sweet, but she just didn't say, you're not getting a healing. <laughs> and he said, I am giving you Johnette. 
all of my sufferings for the sake of living his life abundantly and women of grace. And don't you stop doing what you're doing or you will nullify the gift I am offering you. And he would not let me stay home with him. He would not let me cancel speaking engagements. He would not let me cancel production dates. Until February 8th, Joanne and I were at Tampa International Airport, and we were heading out to Dubuque, Iowa. He had had an MRI the day before, and I called for the results. And I was told by the physician assistant that he had about eight weeks. We went to Dubuque, and that was the last time I went out until one month after I buried him. I watched the hand of God move so profoundly upon my husband. The Holy Spirit was palpable in him. Benedict Rochelle has a new little wee book out um, talking about questions and answers on the spiritual life, and I read something in there that I thought was so very appropriate. He said that when somebody is terminally ill and they entrust their suffering to the passion of Christ and their suffering in union with him, that God perfects that soul in such a short period of time. And I saw that happening with Anthony. One day he said to me, Johnette, don't you get it? Don't you get it? I have to go so that God can do in you the work he wants to do. He was laying down his life surrendering his life for me. He would say to Father Edmund Sylvia, I just want to get into the Immaculate Heart of Our Lady because that's where I can get closest to the cross. That's where I want to be, Father. I watched him travel through purgation, illumination to what I believe was union when finally a stroke affected him on Easter Sunday morning. And he was taken between the octave of Easter and he was taken the week uh, between Easter and Divine Mercy on the 11th of April this past year. I was at his side, obviously, as was Father Ed, who had literally moved in with us. The Blessed Sacrament was reposed before him. We had relics of a lot of the saints there. And he was taking his last breaths, and it was very obvious that he was doing that. And I was crying, and I was stroking him, and I was holding his hand, and I was stroking his face, and I was telling him, I love you so much, Anthony. I love you so much. Baby, I love you so much. And I am weeping. I am weeping. I am weeping. But my heart is filled with such joy. Because in a few short seconds, you will behold our Lord face to face. You're going to see Jesus, baby. And I have to tell you that I have spiritual envy. You get to go to heaven, and I have to go to confession. <laughs> I had asked our Lord on Palm Sunday when it was clear that Anthony was failing pretty quickly. I said, you know, I, I just want one one blessing, Lord. I said, please send your mother and my son to get him. And Anthony died with a little smile on his face. And I believe that indeed Our Lady and Simon came to take him home. The deathbed is such a sacred place. 
It is truly a moment where eternity in all its fullness intersects the dimension of time in which we live. I was more aware of the spiritual realities than I was aware of what was taking place right in that room. I, it was like I had a foot in both worlds. And I turned to Father Ed after Anthony had been dead for about, I don't know, a minute and a half or something. And I said, Father Ed, do you think that he's had his particular judgment yet? And he says, oh, John, I'm quite certain that he's had his particular judgment. I said, I'm so glad that's over for him. <laughs> you know, I was just totally caught up in the glory of what had happened. God had taken him home. Now, here's a question. Do I miss him? Yesterday, Monsignor Tom said to me, are you married? And I said, yes, Father, I am. I mean, no, I'm not. I haven't even made that transition in my mind. You know, I still and probably will always wear my wedding ring. I miss him terribly. I miss the solid assurance that he was in my life and his protection of me and his love of me, which was amazing. But would I want him back here? I don't think so. He is an eternal beatitude. I don't think I can be that selfish. When we prayed this morning together, Kathy told me that she had a sense of Anthony and Simon standing on either side of me. I, I think that they're with me right now. On the 23rd said, our, our loved ones are not separated from us, only invisible to us. Now here's the question. Well, Johnette, does it mean, you know, if God calls you to his service that you have to lose a child and lose a husband? Like, you're scaring me, woman up there. <laughs> you know? Like, if I say, yes, I want to work for the Lord, what's he going to require of me? I don't know what's in your future. I don't think he's going to ask you to give your son or your husband. But I think he is going to ask you to look at every circumstance in your life through the eyes of faith. I think he is going to ask you to take every circumstance and trial, every circumstance and trial, and unite it to his cross the joys as well as the sorrows, in union with him. Because he wants to use you. I don't know why God wants to use us. Before his first creative act, he knew you already, and he knew you by name, and he knew precisely the day and time in which he would give you life because he knew he needed precisely you in that day and time. You! with your gifts, with your talents, with your disposition, with even your flaws, because here's the funny thing, not that we embrace our flaws, but God even uses those for the sanctification of others. You know, so that person that irritates you, God bless that person that irritates you. You know, God's working in that person through the irritation that they cause to perfect you, to give you patience, charity, perseverance, fortitude, long-suffering, whatever it may be. So when your husband or your kids really drive you nuts, praise God. <laughs> and all he desires is an openness of heart. He just wants to come in. I want to tell you about Louis de Montfort. I love St. Louis de Montfort. True devotion to Mary. St. Louis says, in the last days, God is going to raise up greater saints than there ever have been in the times before. And he tells us that he is going to do something terrific through these saints. He says this, 
I have said that this would come to pass particularly at the end of the world and indeed presently. Now, and then he says this, the most high with his holy mother has, don't you love that little word, has, he must, has to form for himself great saints who shall surpass most of the other saints in sanctity. God is looking at you today. You are the ones that he wants to make bigger than all of the saints that have preceded us. He wants to suit you up in his armor and send you. He has a uniform with your name on it. (laughs) My brothers and sisters in Christ, God has a mission for us today. God wants to use you powerfully and in abundance. And all we need to do is say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, come, come. I will go with you. Take me, Lord Jesus. Take me and use me and use me. And so my question to you is simply this. Are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? Are you ready to suit up? Are you ready to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you ready to burn like fire? Are you ready to go into the highways and the byways? Are you willing to use the full measure of the gift of your authentic femininity, ladies and gentlemen, the full measure of your gift of masculinity, and go reclaim this world for Christ Jesus? If you are, stand up and show them that you mean it. We're going, Lord. Look, Lord, you've got all of these people standing up. They are ready to go, so I ask that the power of the Holy Spirit would come down. We want a new infilling, Lord. We want an innovatio, Lord. I ask you to send to us that gift of fortitude, that gift of courage, that gift of perseverance. I ask you to send to us in this moment a charity of heart, the likes of which we have never known. I ask you, Lord God, to give us the the, the desire, the desire to take every contradiction, every suffering, every pain, and to put it into your most sacred heart for the good of the world. Lord Jesus, I ask you to use us to the full measure in which you have desired to use us. I thank you for the lives that you have given. I ask you, Lord, to set us free, to send us out, to let us proclaim your word in Jesus' name. The saints of the latter time said, Amen. Now that we have listened to Johnette's testimony, let us recognize the need for each of us to help one another, to speak of God's action in our lives, to sing together, to pray together, to cry together, to share our Judeo-Christian faith, which will strengthen us for whatever lies ahead in our life journey. It isn't easy to give a personal testimony or to share so deeply. Magnificat Proclaims would like to thank Johnette Benkovic for truly proclaiming his marvelous deeds. Well, we certainly hope you have enjoyed the program. And for more information or a copy of today's broadcast, please write us at Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, 92859. Once again, Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, zip code 92859. And for some of you, it might be easier to call. So feel free to call us at 800-500-4556. If you would like to have more information about the Magnificat ministry, including a location of a Magnificat chapter in your area, you can call 504-828-MARY. That's 504-828-MARY. Or visit the Magnificat website at www 
magnificat-ministry.org. On behalf of Magnificat Proclaims, this is Donna Ross inviting you to join us next time as we present more personal testimonies from our inspirational Catholic speakers. Remember, Magnificat proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you in His peace. participate each week, you may visit the St. Dismas Guild website at stdismasguild.org. That's S-T-D-I-S-M-A-S-G-U-I-L-D dot O-R-G to either purchase the Bread of Life Bible Study book or download the complimentary lessons. In 1989, Deacon Ken and Marie Finn began this prison, pro-life, and pro-family ministry to remind us that the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will instruct you in everything and remind you of all that I have told you. John 14, verse 26. God bless. Thanks so much for listening to this Magnificat podcast. Have you been touched by our time together? If so, for more information or to find a Magnificat chapter near you, go to our website at magnificat-ministry.org or visit us on social media. We would love to hear from you. You can also email us at magnificatcst at aol.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.